Um, if you are here for the first time today, you've come uh, during the series that we're doing at the moment, um, which is called, what's it called? Words of Fire and Stone. And it's um, a series in the Ten Commandments. In the first term, we, we uh, built up to this series by looking at the first part of the book of Exodus. And this term, we're camping in Exodus chapter 20 and slowing everything down and looking at a commandment per week. Uh, and this morning, we come to, you shall, here's the reading for this morning, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. That's the reading. Um, would you agree with me that our world seems confused about sex? Uh, can I just say, I have messaged a couple of parents this morning whose children sometimes stay in the service to say that this uh, might be PG, the sermon, and so if uh, there is an underage child, it's not too late to usher them out to Sunday school. Although, as I said to somebody beforehand, it's, it reminds me of the story of the, ten, of the father who went to his 10-year-old son and said, son, it's time for us to have the chat. And the 10-year-old looked at his dad and said, okay, dad, what do you need to know? <laughs> it does seem to me like uh, the horse has bolted in many cases, hasn't it? Our world is a very confused place when it comes to the subject of sex. Uh, there are certain values in our society that have been accepted uncritically as right and normal that even one generation back would have been unthinkable. Delayed marriage, cohabitation on the way to marriage, no-fault divorce, the normalizing of LGBT, the destruction of a patriarchal nuclear family. 60% of South African children are born to unmarried mothers. Everybody knows that these values have their roots in the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s, but they actually can be traced 30 years further back to Bertrand Russell, who lived from 1872 to 1970, is the famous atheistic British philosopher who is seen by feminists as a hero of women's rights and wrote extensively about women's rights. The highest good for Russell was freedom from any moral constraint. Um, by and large, when it comes to sexual ethics, our culture has been shaped by Russell's dream for so-called freedom. And consequently, sex has been distorted. Some people think that sex is a god. Our culture worships sex. Anything goes, nothing shocks, and sexual liberty has never been higher. Uh, sex is an itch to be scratched, an appetite to be sated. And once we accept this, we are told, then we can simply have sex whenever we want it, with whomever we want, and we will be healthier for it, with the only T and C being consent. The worship of sex in our culture is really the search for intimacy, and we chase it and we long for it. The desire for intimate connection can rule us like a god. And because all gods demand sacrifices, many are willing to give their bodies to another for it without any commitment or guarantee. Unchecked sexual desire gradually commands your heart, demands your obedience, and becomes a god to you 
more than the true and living God. Somebody has said, we don't even treat our motor cars like that. You would never dream of buying a motor car without a guarantee. But we are willing to give our bodies to another without any promises or commitments or guarantees. And so some think that sex is a god. By way of contrast, other think, others think that sex is dirty. Alongside the so-called freedom and liber liberalizing of sex has gone an unprecedented rise in our world today in the levels of abuse, divorce, adultery, sexual addictions, and dysfunction. And some here today will know personally the hurt and the confusion and the despair that comes from broken relationships made more painful by the sexual dimension of that relationship. It's interesting to me that Russell, the great rationalist, was actually a man of faith who believed two myths that are really a faith position. Number one, myth number one, you are most free when you operate independently of any rules. Uh, that is a myth that Russell believed. Put the handbrake down, then you will be really free. But actually, we are most alive and we will flourish most when we operate according to how we are designed, not when we cast off all restraint. That's like thinking that you can free a goldfish by taking it out of its bowl and dropping it on the carpet. It's a foolish way to think. We are most free when we are in our correct medium, not when we are free of any restraint. True freedom comes not when we live according to our desires, but when we live according to our design. But he believed a second myth, and that is that we are most free when we follow our desires. Our desires are the best way to know what is best for us. That is a very, very common view in our culture today. We are taught it from the youngest age that the way to happiness is to what? Follow your heart. Every Disney movie preaches that gospel. You've got to be true to yourself. But our hearts can desire a lot of bad things. Is that not true? Uh, I encountered this in my own heart yesterday when we had a meeting here, and at tea time, there were the most delicious donuts. And my heart desired them. And I'm glad to say that I didn't follow my heart on that occasion, but at a glance you can tell I have at other occasions. Following your heart's desires is not what leads to the flourishing of humanity. Why do we think that our sexual desires always lead us to health? The evidence is overwhelming in our world that that has failed. Our hearts desire all kinds of things that lead us astray and into misery. And so we need God to weigh into this discussion. He invented sex, and contrary to popular opinion, the Bible is the most sex-positive book in the world. God's laws are not arbitrary rules from a tyrant who wants to spoil our fun. God's rules lead to human flourishing and to our blessing. You shall not commit adultery. So let's consider firstly what this command forbids. What is included in this commandment? What exactly does it forbid? Now obviously in its plainest sense, this is forbidding sex with someone who is married. 
In the Hebrew, it literally simply says, no adultery. Marriage is assumed in the command. And let's remember that in each of these commandments, something is forbidden and something is implicitly affirmed and then unpacked later on in the following chapters. And so in this commandment, obviously adultery is forbidden, but behind that, faithfulness in marriage is affirmed. This commandment is forbidding unfaithfulness in marriage and protecting God's ideal for marriage, which is given in Genesis chapter 2 and is repeated by both Jesus and Paul as being applicable uh, centuries later. Look at this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Just, let's just leave that verse up for a moment. I want you to notice something very interesting about that verse. This verse is given right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, it's said about Adam and Eve as they um, have the first marriage in the world. There is something unusual about that verse if you think about it. And that is, why is mother and father being spoken about in the context of Adam and Eve? They had no parents. They probably didn't have belly buttons, in case you've ever wondered about that. But they had no parents, so why is it said like that? That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. There's the marriage formula in the Bible that Jesus subscribed to, and so did Paul, and so should we. And the reason is, is because in that simple formula of marriage, God is setting up a template that transcends all of time and culture as to what true marriage is, and it is still holding today. Marriage is between one woman and one man who are united for life. That is God's pattern for marriage. And that is what is being protected by this commandment. Do you think this commandment is relevant today? Well, absolutely it is. For perhaps no other generation has seen marriage under so much attack as we are seeing it today. Sexual desire is surely one of the most powerful desires that God has given us. Uh, let's remember that it does come from God. And it is incredibly powerful. It is like electricity that is a good thing, and perhaps we're aware of that more than anybody else. But it needs to be insulated for it to be a safe thing. And God's insulation for sexual desire is permanent, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. That is the only safe sex. Of course, the Pharisee wants to know, well, what is off-limits? What about sex with someone who isn't married? Technically, that's not adultery. No, but it is fornication. Or how far can I go with my girlfriend without breaking this commandment? Or what if we're engaged and it's inevitable? We need to stop being Pharisees when it comes to God's law. Let's remember that, there is, that sex is for one context only, and it is given in that verse that we just looked at. The New Testament word for any sex outside of that insulated ideal is the word porneia. We get our word pornography and our word fornication from this word. 
It's really a cover-all word that includes everything outside of heterosexual, monogamous marriage for life. Uh, Jesus affirmed this no fewer than 11 times in the New Testament. For example, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that porneia includes fantasizing about having sex with someone to whom you are not married. What if we don't go all the way? What if we really love each other? Is engagement really that different from marriage? What about friends with benefits? Jesus would say, stop asking stupid questions. God's ideal is God's ideal. Stop trying to get around it. That's what the Pharisee does. But the follower of Jesus wants to abide by it and appreciate it and see it for what it is. If, the, if what you are doing with somebody that you are not married with results in arousal, it is porneia. Uh, perhaps a good test is, would you do this with your sister? It's not against affection. It is against arousal. Here's the second heading this morning. Why does God forbid these things? Why is it wrong for two consenting adults to have recreational sex? Why this hang-up about sex? Is Christianity anti-pleasure? Is God a cosmic killjoy withholding something good from us? The answer to that question really has to do with the purpose of sex. And I want to mention two things. First of all, the purpose of sex is for procreation. Sex is biological. God wants us to have babies. It is for the producing of godly offspring that God has given sex <clears throat> to humanity. And the safest and the best place for children who take a very long time to mature is in the family. I wonder if you remember that song from the 90s by the box gang, which had a line in it that said this, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Remember that song? When we say that sex is biological, of course, we don't mean it's only biological. That's the, that's the view of the pagans. We are not only animals. Sex is different for us than the animals, and we all know this. No animal says to its mate, I just need to know that you want me for more than my body. Or I don't like the way you're looking at the other animals. It is different for us. It's just about procreation for them. It's not less than about procreation for us. But sex does also have a higher purpose than procreation. When you reduce sex to biology merely or to recreation, you dehumanize it and you reduce it to the level of animals and you do damage. And so while sex is about procreation and biology, it is also, secondly, spiritual. Marriage and sex is pointing to something divine and eternal, which is not true for the animal kingdom. Sex is what clinches the deal when two people are united in marriage. It's the glue that holds the marriage together. And when you superglue your fingers together, it is a very painful thing to separate them. Unless you do it enough. If you do it enough, then eventually the glue will lose its bonding agent. And all that you'll be left with is calluses. 
And it is an interesting thing here that, that our sociology, always behind the Bible, finally catching up to the Bible, is recognizing actually the problem with multiple sex partners is that it eliminates the ability to be intimate in relationship for your calloused. The extraordinary thing about this first marriage of Adam and Eve is where it comes in the Bible. It is the culmination of the creation of the universe. More verses are spent on the marriage of Adam and Eve than on any other subject in the first two chapters of the Bible. It comes at the end of the creation account, on the seventh day, as the climax to the great act of creation that God has just completed. It is the key, therefore, to understanding the universe that God has just created. God has created a backdrop as the context to the human marriage at the end of chapter 2. And the reason that he's done that is because it is a picture of God's relationship with his people. That is what marriage points to. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 5, when he quotes Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, for this man, a man, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and become one flesh. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, you think I'm talking about marriage, but actually I'm talking about Christ and the church. Human marriage is a great signpost about a much more important relationship than marriage, a relationship that is so much more important than marriage that some people will not get married in order to help others to come into that relationship with God. Like marriage, relationship with Jesus is intimate. We are, we are one with Christ and he with us. He puts his spirit into us. Like marriage, relationship with Jesus is exclusive. He will not share us with other gods. He is jealous for us. And like in marriage, relationship with Jesus is based on unconditional acceptance. He sees us for exactly who we are and loves us anyway. In spite of our imperfections, I will love you. I'm not going anywhere. And do you know that that is the longing of all of our hearts? To be known and to be loved in spite of our imperfections, in spite of our shame, in spite of our sin. That is, sex in marriage is an echo of God's love. What we crave in sex, we find in Christ. And so when you have sex outside of the confines of total commitment, exclusivity, and oneness, it does damage. Because sex touches the most personal and vulnerable parts of us and exposes us in the most intimate of ways, of course it should only be done in a relationship of commitment and permanence. So many ignore what God says about sex because they're afraid that they're missing out on something. But friends, God has got rules precisely because he doesn't want you to miss out on anything. Well, how are we to overcome sexual temptation? Thirdly, you know, sex is so holy and so deep that we shouldn't even entertain thoughts about sex outside of marriage, Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 27. To say don't lust 
I mean, how realistic is that? In our, it's like asking me not to breathe. Everything in our culture is designed to make me lust. Um, have you driven around Stellenbosch in summer and seen how the girls dress? You can't drive down a road without seeing spray-on jeans, or as I like to call them, ankle-length panties. You walk around the uh, shopping mall and the pictures, just the pictures uh, in the windows. Everything is designed to get us to lust. Of course, it's not saying don't desire. Sexual desire is a healthy thing. If you don't have sexual desire, you should probably go and see your doctor and get onto a tonic of some kind. It's a very natural and a God-given thing, sexual desire. But what is being forbidden is don't fantasize about the sex act with someone who isn't your spouse. It's clear. And so how are you going to resist temptation? Well, the Bible has something to say about that. To the marrieds, the Bible says, have sex and have it often. Have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which will be on the screen. Yes, Paul, since sexual, immor since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Uh, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God's... Uh, answer to sexual temptation in marriage is have lots of sex. And, and did you notice the, that Paul acknowledges female sexual desire, which we all thought was invented by Cosmopolitan in the 60s? But actually, there it is in the Bible. Husbands do not deprive your wives. Not just wives do not deprive your husbands. And so Paul wants married people to have sex regularly and to only stop having sex when they're having a prayer meeting. I've, I speak to lots of married people over my years in ministry and often intimacy has stopped in marriage. And I usually say, well, your prayer lives must be astonishing for that's the only reason. that I don't see headaches, by the way, as a reason or tiredness after a long day in the office as a reason. It's only prayer. That's a 10-year prayer meeting you've been in. It's time to stop praying and to come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Perhaps uh, the marrieds here this morning may need to have a conversation about this. It's so interesting to me in my job, you know, I've got to tell, married, I've got to tell the unmarried to stop having sex and I've got to tell the married to have sex. God really knows what he's talking about. He invented it. 
What about singles? <clears throat> well, Paul has something to say to them as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, the same chapter, just a few verses on, verse 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. By the way, notice the Bible, how positive the Bible is about singleness. Singleness is a perfectly legitimate lifestyle choice for Christians. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You thought that you needed to get married for other reasons. But here Paul says sex is a perfectly good enough reason to get married. If you are burning with passion, get married. You know, some of the singles are say that they are committed to God, but when sex calls, they answer. You might be in an immoral relationship. And you rationalize it to yourself. But actually what it's saying is that you can't live without it. It's become your God. And so we need to go back to the first commandment. Have no other gods. Jesus is the intimacy that you crave. Jesus is the unconditional love that you long for. Jesus is the beauty that you desire. And when you find him, you start to have power to say no to sexual sin. I'm going to say this tonight to the students. You know, I'm going to tell them tonight that they can, they can switch off sexual desire like a light switch. And they'll say, I don't believe you. If, if they are, imagine if they are snogging on a couch in her father's lounge, thinking that he's out and, you know, the locomotive is about to leave the station and they're getting all hot and bothered. And in bursts the kind of Navy SEAL father with a shotgun. Instantaneously, he will switch off his sexual desire in that moment. It is possible, is it not? Because, let me explain why that's important to understand. It's because when you have a desire that is stronger than sexual desire, like the desire to live, it replaces that desire. And friends, that is really how we ought to deal with sexual temptation. Lesser desires are controlled by displacing them with larger desires. And then they won't define and dominate and control you anymore. And so when we are filled with the largeness and the majesty of God's presence, which if you're a Christian, you are always in, by the way. You don't need the army, the army seal father in the room. God is in the room. Then we'll be able to control our desires. And if you, if you are so dependent on having a relationship and on dating then you might want to think about this that I heard somebody say once. I think it's brilliant. You're not ready to date until you are ready not to date. Do you get what I'm saying? Because if, you, if you're going to have dating in the right place, you won't become codependent and idolatrous about the other person. Now, let me just close by speaking to those who have made mistakes. 
And let me remind you that Jesus thinks that all of us in this room are sexual sinners, for none of us have not lusted or fantasized. That is true for me, and it is true for you, men and women. I also want to remind you of the wonderful words that Jesus spoke to a sexual sinner in John chapter 8. Jesus loves sexual sinners, and he can do something about their sin. It's the woman who was caught in adultery. Do you remember that story? And Jesus, straight, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Do you remember? She said, If you have never sinned, cast the first. He said to them, to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, If you've never sinned, cast the first stone. And they all disappear. And the woman is there just with Jesus. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Feel these wonderful words. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see the order of those words? They're so important, aren't they? The order of those words is not, don't sin anymore, and then I won't condemn you. It's, I don't condemn you. Stop sinning. How important the order of those words is. There is wonderful forgiveness with Jesus. He changes your status before God, and then he calls on us to change our behavior. No one is beyond his forgiveness, no matter what you've done or has been done to you. For God will make you a virgin in his sight and wash you clean and make you more pure than physical virginity. When we accept what Christ has done for us, it will change us. Has it changed you? Is there repentance that is required? Maybe it's time to end an ungodly relationship. If you can't live without it, it's your God. You need to change gods. For the true and living God does not demand from you what the sex God demands from you. Is it time to seek help for porn? It's controlling you. Is it time to get help for the past? It's defining you. Well, it's time to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Let's, let's bow our heads for a moment of quiet reflection. And you may need to say something to the Lord in the privacy of your own heart off the back of what we've spoken about this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love sexual sinners like us. Thank you that something can be done about our sin and our shame. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who does not condemn, who loves us, and who wants to be in our lives and to be personal and intimate with us. Lord, thank you for this commandment 
we pray that it would be true of us individually and corporately as a church as we navigate our way through a culture that has turned its back on you and on your good laws. And above all, Lord, we pray that we would be able to hold out the hope of forgiveness and cleansing and newness of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he offers to those around us. And I pray for somebody who may be here this morning, Lord, for whom this has been a difficult talk. Perhaps somebody who has deep wounds in this area. Perhaps somebody who is struggling with temptation and idolatry in this area. Lord, please, would you be merciful to them and draw near to them now. And we pray this for Christ, our Savior's sake. Amen.